Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey Spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I am here with my ghoul friend Jessica. Hey! Hello! And today, as you can see by the title, we are going to be diving into a two-parter of the JFK assassination. Our first assassination. Wow. It only took us two and a half years. Right? I know. (laughs) So before we get into that, we do want to say hello and welcome to any new listeners who may be checking out the show today and to returning spooksters. Welcome back. Thank you so much for being here. If you would like to hang out with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is at 3 spooked girls we also have an amazing facebook group called three spooked girls official if you want to like interacting with us on a more personal level head over there we do a lot of fun stuff there's book club watch parties now episode discussion threads all kinds of cool stuff definitely check it out if you would like to support the show, you can head to patreon.com backslash three spooked girls. For as little as a dollar, you get one bonus episode a month. Then at two and up, you get Jessica Slaughter's movie reviews and plot lines, one of our favorite things ever. And from there, it goes up and you get video content starting at $5. We do a monthly live stream. And then I also have my Haunted Grounds video series for you that you can check out. So yeah, we would love to have you definitely check that out. With that, we are going to take a quick promo break and we will be right back. A fact is something unchanging and can be verified. Opinion, on the other hand, is subjective and a person's point of view. History contains not only facts, but opinions to fill in the gaps. And it's these interpretations that feed urban legends. My name is Brenda, and I'm the host of Horrifying History, where you will hear about the unexplained, paranormal, and supernatural happenings that has stained the pages of history. Join us to hear these tales, and you can make up your own minds about what really happened in history. You can find us on any major podcast provider, and on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter to join our conversation. All right, well, welcome back, guys. Before we dive in, I am going to give it to Jessica to tell us our drink this week. So, because we're talking the Kennedys, and when Tara talks, they talk about the Kennedys go to France and how well Jackie was received in France. I decided just to do a French martini. So check out tomorrow for the recipe. It will be on all the socials. Yay! Oh my god, yeah, they were like... Queen, love you so much. They loved her so much. <laughs> <laughs> they were more excited about her. Uh, and it's also pink, which is very reminiscent of Jackie because of her pink Chanel. Yeah. I was like, ah, this works. 
I love it. I love it. Uh, Real quick, before I hand it to Jessica, I do want to talk with you guys for a second. So we have gotten to the point where we need some assistance with editing. We are going to be looking for an intern editor or a junior editor. So if you have audio experience, please head to the show notes, the link tree. I'm sure it will be on the Facebook group and other places to apply. We're going to leave the Google form open for a while. There will be all the details on there so you can take a look. And I will just say, if you don't have any editing experience, we love you guys and we appreciate you trying to offer to help, but I don't have time to train anybody. So we would like someone who already has experience, has edited audio before, all of that great stuff. So yeah, definitely check that out. If that is you or somebody you know, let them know and send them our way. But today in part one, we're going to kind of lay some foundation. Jessica's got a bunch of good history and background for us. And then I'm going to walk us up through the assassination. So I'm going to hand it to my friend now. Yes, yes. So we're talking about JFK. So John Fitzgerald Kennedy was born outside of Boston in Brookline, Massachusetts on May 29th, 1917. So he's a Gemini. He was born to Joseph Patrick Kennedy Sr., who was a businessman and a politician, and to Rose Elizabeth Fitzgerald Kennedy, who was a philanthropist and a socialite. They were a successful Massachusetts-based Irish Catholic family, which is very important that you understand that they were Irish Catholic because this literally drove Joe Kennedy's entire fucking life. And Joe Kennedy, or Joe Sr., as I will call him, had his eyes set on achieving all that he could achieve in life. And this include, for a time, he had his eyes set on the Oval Office. Joe Sr. made his money on Wall Street. And Joe was, you know, possibly a little shady. I mean, they were like a middle class family when JFK was born. And I'm going to refer to JFK like in a little bit. I'm going to start referring to him as Jack. So for everyone who's following along, mainly because that was the name his family called him. And I feel like that was probably how he identified as himself. Though I didn't see one. I had a brain fart when I was reading something earlier. It said his nicknames in school were Jack and Ken. And I'm like, why the fuck was his name Ken? And like 45 minutes later doing something completely different, listening to the campaign song that I'll talk about later i was like oh because his name is kennedy it's been one of those research like research times you know it's all right so joe was a little shady and it has never been proven but definitely rumored that he was a bootlegger during prohibition and that's how he made all his money was running the rum so he was a little bit of a sneaky sneak but who knows joe senior's father was a liquor seller and then right before that time he started selling liquor and throughout his life he would be linked to other rum runners or like prohibition not prohibitionists like anti-prohibitionists <laughs> and bootleggers and mobsters and so you want to tuck that away for later especially for next episode you want to tuck that away so when we think of Kennedy's, we think of the political dynasty that is like riddled with tragedy. This political family was orchestrated by the patriarch Joe. And it is noted to say that Rose was extremely prominent in this as well, because she is the daughter and the eldest of six children of a well-beloved Boston mayor by the name of John 
Francis Honey Fitzgerald. I love that his nickname was Honey Fitz. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's cute. All right. And one of Jack's earliest memories included accompanying his grandfather on like walking tours of historic Boston, which I thought was like really cute. But also because he eventually becomes president, like Boston is this huge place where our country kind of started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Joe was great at navigating political waters and would eventually land an appointment as the U.S. ambassador of the UK. And he was appointed by FDR, so Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who the Roosevelts were another political dynasty. And he would hold the position from 1938 to 1940. So we're talking like early war time for World War II. While Joe served his country, he took his entire family. Now, I'm going to run down all of the kids for you because there were several. And I will give you like very, very tiny amounts of people that you should know. The Kennedy family was made up of all these kids. And it was Joseph Patrick or Joe Kennedy Jr. who was born July 25th, 1915. And then Jack was born May 29th, 1917. Rosemary or Rosemary Kennedy was born September 13th, 1980 or 1918. Sorry, that would have been like really old of her mother to have a child. <laughs> My be. No, 1918. <laughs> it is really sad about Rosemary Kennedy because it was said that she was slow. So she had some sort of like developmental issue. And during this time frame, like people didn't understand that women were still being treated for hysteria. So Joe actually wanting the perfect family took her and got her a very controversial lobotomy. Mm. Oh. So she went in being like stunted like a few years, just a little slow. Basically, she also had like a very high sex drive and like Joe and Rose panicked that she was going to end up like pregnant and this was going to be a big scandal. Then how are they going to explain that their perfect family had a child who was developmentally challenged and they didn't even understand that. So he paid like he paid off the doctor to do it. They only did it in like extreme cases of like people who were like violent and stuff like that. And so basically they told her to sing and then the doctor would keep cutting into her frontal lobe until she started stop singing. So she went in being like maybe just a few years below her actual age and understanding. And when she left, she had the mental capacity of a five-year-old. Oh my God. And it was said that like Joe and Rose were like devastated by this. Like he he realized he fucked up. He was like, shit, I really fucked up. But he did have her institutionalized for the rest of her life. And she did live until like 2005. Oh, wow. Yeah, she old. (laughs) (laughs) But probably because she was getting good care and nobody was trying to slice away her brain. Oh, yeah. So when you're thinking of tragedies, add that one to the list. The next was Kathleen Agnes or Kick Kennedy, who was born February 20th, 1920. She was part of the Golden Trio, as it was called. And I'll talk about it in a second. But Kick actually married when she went to England. She ended up staying after they all left and she married a man who was Protestant and Rose was like, fuck you, we're Irish, blah, 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 kind of disowned her. Her husband died at war. Then they were like, oh, she's going to come back and the church will accept her. And then she didn't. And then she got involved with like a married Protestant man. And Rose was like, no, no, no. And Kit actually ended up dying in a plane crash in like the 1940s. Uh, Her and her fiance were on their way and they were flying into a storm and this guy was just like, I don't care. It's a storm and the plane crashed. And Rose Kennedy said it was divine retribution. What 
the fuck? Yeah. Rose. So there's a few more. So there's, I believe it's pronounced Eunice Mary Kennedy. She was born July 10th, 1921. Patricia Helen Pat Kennedy, May 6th, 1924. Robert Francis Kennedy, who was also Bobby Kennedy, who will come up later. November 20th, 1925. Jean Ann Kennedy, February 20th, 1928. And Edward Moore Ted Kennedy, February 22nd, 1932. They had very, like, clustered children. Yeah, I noticed that. Jeez. (laughs) I was like, there's a lot of February. They have two children whose birthdays are in February. So (laughs) on the same date, like, there's three February babies, but, like, two are on the 20th. Like I said, all the children would go with Joe and Rose to England, and Rose just fucking loved the limelight. She was like, I'm an ambassador's wife. Ooh, like, that's my impression of her. She often will be seen, like, following her kids around when they go to Paris. Jack was like, I don't want anyone to come. And she's like, I'm still coming. And I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) But yeah. So Joe would ultimately bring about his own political dreams downfall when he was slow to act on the outlook of World War II. Joe rejected the beliefs of Winston Churchill and basically was looking for any kind of compromise with Nazi Germany to be possible because he was looking at it as a businessman. Like, how can we like business this and not like no they want to like erase an entire race of people again many over people right instead he supported the prime minister neville chamberlain in his policies of impeachment shortly before the nazi bombing of british cities began in september of 1940 joe once again sought a personal meeting with hitler without the approval of the united states like states department in order to bring around an understanding between the united states and germany So basically, Joe wasn't sure that Hitler could be stopped and maybe we shouldn't be as aggressive towards him because like it's like very boardwalky empire like think, oh, I'll just join with you because then I won't get run over, which (laughs) FDR was like, no, thank you. Right. No, 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 no. (laughs) So basically that came down. And when that happened, he had to pass on his political ambitions to his children, especially the Golden Trio, which I mentioned earlier, which was Joe, Jack, and Kick. He was like, these three children are predestined to bring glory to the Kennedy name. It was very important that this family be Catholic. In fact, Jack was baptized on June 19th, 1917. Being Catholic is a huge factor in his campaigns. Jack had a really good education. Of course, his family came from money, so he would be given the best opportunities to attend the best schools. In September 1931, Jack would be attending, I believe it's pronounced Shoat? Shoat? I can't pronounce it right. A prestigious boarding school in Wallingford, Connecticut for high school. Joe Jr. was already attending, and this is the place where the competitive nature between Joe and Jack really took off, or at least what people wanted to produce it. Joe Jr. was a very active athlete, and he was a hardworking student, and he produced top grades. While as Jack was very smart, he knew that since Joe Jr. was like the front runner for the future of the Kennedy dynasty, he did not apply himself as much as Joe did. He was like, I can be lazy. His algebra teacher said, Jack has not reached the point in where he puts his work first at all times. He must be anxious to do well. He must be because he spends so much time telling me the fact time, which might be better spent improving by his deeds. So basically, he was a lazy. He's a lazy fuckhead. His father wrote to encourage him, and he said... 
If I didn't really feel you had the goods, I would be most charitable in my attitude towards your failings. I'm not expecting too much, and I will not be disappointed if you turn out to be a real genius. But I think you could be a really worthwhile citizen with good judgment and understanding. So like, to me, that reads like, I have a high expectation of you, but I'm going to make it sound like it's okay if you're failing, but you will be good. And I will not be disappointed. Jack was athletic like most of the Kennedy family, but due to his family illnesses, he wasn't as active in school sports as Joe was. Though this was kept a secret from the outside world, Jack spent most of his childhood in and out of doctors, hospitals, home cares, and while at school in the school infirmary. He was very sick. When he was just two years old, Jack contracted scarlet fever. In fact, he almost died and the family called a priest to deliver last rites because they thought he was going to die. You know, like those people you're like, oh my God, they've just like had so many brushes with death. JFK, man, like there were like five other times in his life he should have died. Oh my God. Basically as an infant, he was like very sick. In 2002, his medical records were released and boy was sick a lot. And before anyone goes, HIPAA, 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 HIPAA came around in 2003. Just saying. According to his medical records, Jack was sick most of his infancy. His symptoms continued throughout his childhood, which included nausea, diarrhea, joint pain, headaches, fever and infections, and fatigue. As he approached adolescence, Jack's main symptoms included diarrhea, nausea, weight loss, which required multiple hospitalizations. At the Mayo Clinic, he was diagnosed with colitis, but today it would be more known as like celiac disease, which is a common component of an autoimmune polyglandular syndrome and other genetic autoimmune diseases diseases. At the age of 15, the arches of his feet were shot, like his body was in severe pain. By the age of 21, he was in so much pain. It was literally like all the time in his sciatic joint nerve. In one of the sources that we're posting, there are these amazing graphs that like outline his life, including his diseases. Later, he would be diagnosed with Addison's disease. And it was easy to say that Jack was sick, very sick most of his life. Jack graduated from high school in 1934, finishing 64th in his class of 112. Just a little over the middle. (laughs) He also was on, he was the business manager of his school yearbook and was voted most likely to succeed. It was basically that he just didn't apply himself to his schoolwork. And I could see why, like if you were in that much pain all the time, why the fuck would you like do homework? But also, like, your dad's going to pay for shit. In September of 1936, Kennedy enrolled at Harvard College, and his application essay stated, The reason I have for wishing to go to Harvard are several. I feel that Harvard can give me a better background and a better liberal education than any other university. I have always wanted to go there, and I have always felt that it is not just another college, but it is a university with something definite to offer. Then too, I would like to go to the same college as my father. To be a Harvard man is an enviable distinction and one that I sincerely hope I shall attain. In 1940, Jack would graduate cum laude from Harvard with a Bachelor's of Arts and Government, concentrating on international affairs. And that fall, he would enroll in the Stanford Graduate School of Business and audit classes there. So he had a very good education. He would also spend a lot of time in Europe. He would remain there when Joe Sr. was the ambassador there, even though it was during the time he was at Harvard. He still was there a lot. And it is interesting. Jack spent so much time there. In fact, he was in Berlin the day that Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Wow. Right. 
It is believed that because of his illness, Jack was reckless. It's the old theory that if you look death in the face, you're more likely to act recklessly. Knowing that tomorrow would isn't given can literally make you live like today is your last day. On September 24th, 1941, Jack, with the help of the director of the Naval Office of Intelligence and the former Naval Attaché to Joseph Kennedy, Alan Kirk, joined the United States Naval Reserves. He was a commissioned officer. He was a lieutenant. And he joined the Office of Naval intelligence in Washington, D.C. But during this time, he met and fell in love with a Danish well-known journalist, Inga Avard. Inga was noted to be a guest, a personal guest, of Adolf Hitler at the 1936 Summer Olympics, and Hitler called her the perfect Aryan woman. So, like, this made everyone nervous because he's this intelligence officer and he's dating this Danish said-to-be-a-spy of the Nazis. So Joe, being Joe, he does what he does best. He arranged for him to go to the Pacific Theater. So he was in Panama for a little bit and then the Pacific Theater, and he would eventually command two PT boats. So he basically would go out and do these missions, which was really hard because, like, Jack was in a lot of pain, and he, like, these boats aren't, like, we're not, I'm not talking like he's on a destroyer or something like that. He's on these, like, little tiny fucking boats. So Lieutenant John F. Kennedy encountered a Japanese destroyer on the night of August 1st or second they're unsure when it was but around that time and basically what happened is that the destroyer they saw it too late and the destroyer split his boat in half and he was then thrust into the water with his crew and two people died 11 people lived but they were three miles away from shore and i don't know about you but i can't swim fucking three miles let alone if i had an autoimmune disease that made me like too thin They said he looked pale all the time. He was like over six feet tall or a little over. He weighed like 155 pounds. So he liked skeleton. I don't think even if I was in the best shape of my life, I could swim. (laughs) I could swim three miles, especially after like being thrust into the water so violently. But he did. He swam for five hours. He even pulled a man who was like much bigger than him. He was too injured to like swim for himself. And he did so by looping his belt around the guy. And then he put it in the belt in his mouth and swam. Oh, my God. Wow. Jack is a badass. When they arrived, they met some locals. This area was definitely like Japanese occupied. But these locals were like, cool, we'll we'll help you out. So what he did is he took out his pocket knife. He found a coconut. And on the coconut, he carved a message. It's Naro ISL. Commander Native knows. Post it. He can pilot 11 alive. Need small boat. Kennedy. And then he sent it out to sea and fucking hoped someone would find it. And they did. And seven days later, the men were rescued. It sounds like such a movie. <laughs> there is a movie and a book written about it. No, I'm just saying, like, that makes sense that there is. But like, oh, my God, that sounds so, like, fake. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, it's Casey. Right. The movie came out in like 1963, but I was like, oh my God. So Jack was being seen as an American hero and he actually received a purple heart for his heroics. Now, in watching one of my documentaries I watched, they weren't supposed to be where they were at. Technically, if the Navy wanted to, they could have brought him up on charges. He could have been court-martialed because two men died because he wasn't doing his job. Gotcha. However, he's a fucking Kennedy. Yeah. (laughs) So that helped him. So he got a purple heart. And actually, like, during this time, like, Joe, they, like, let him know, like, hey, your son is missing. He didn't tell anyone in the family. Well, then when they found him, he (laughs) has to tell the family, oh, BT Dubs, Jack was missing. 
for like a minute <laughs> and <laughs> it's okay. We found him. Wow. So then he's like brought back. He actually does like a couple more, like he spends some more time there, but he comes back eventually. But this would trigger something in Joe Jr. Hearing about his brother and the heroics, Joe decided like a year later that he was going to participate in a very risky mission, though he wrote his mother and told him it's not. And he didn't have to because like back then, if you were an American pilot and you flew 25 missions, you could go home and you didn't have to go out. And so he had already done all his mandatory missions and was supposed to come back stateside. And his mother was very upset because like she, he was supposed to come back stateside and spend time with them. So the mission was that he he and his co-pilot were to fly a bomber loaded up with all these bombs and everything and aim it towards a Nazi base in Belgium and then bail out over the English Channel to be like picked up by like allied forces. However, it was unsuccessful because the bombs detonated before they could eject and Joe was killed instantly. And that was August 12th, 1944. So almost a year to like Jack's thing, which this was like a big shift because now they've lost their first child and he's supposed to be the forebearer of the Kennedy dynasty that was joe senior's plan and it did not take joe more than like a little bit of grief to realize that the new person that he had to groom was jack and i think that there was probably a big like oh my god so he would have to start thinking about a political career and on march 1st 1945 jack would be discharged from the navy he was beat the fuck up like he already had back issues and then he like had that he could have literally been paralyzed so We're going to skip ahead to June 17th of 1946. This is basically (laughs) the first time that Jack is going to hold public office. He wins the Democrat primary for the 11th Congressional District. And that November, he would be elected to the House of Representatives. Basically, Joe Sr. bought him that seat because of all the campaigns that he spent. Like, normally in, like, the 1940s, like, this particular time, they would only spend, like, maybe $25,000 on, like, the entire campaign. Joe spent way more, 10 times that. So, like, at least $250,000 to win a congressional seat to, like, the House of Representatives. Because he had to get his son going. Because, like, Jack didn't have the grades. He didn't have... I mean, he was, you know, he was one of the Kennedys, so he was handsome. And one of the things I want to point out is that, like, Joe and Rose knew how to market their children. They fucking knew how to do it. They dressed them in the nicest clothes. The nannies that they had were required to, like, videotape them. And then they would review it and figure out what looked good on them. And that's how they would dress them. Everything was planned. Like, those home videos that we see are all, like... I mean, they're real. Like, the kids are interacting. But they're all very, like, manipulated. They were the Kris Jenner before Kris Chris Jenner existed. Mm. <laughs> the ultimate momagers. <laughs> oh my God, yes. So it was a dadager. Dadager, momager team. Parentagers? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> the Kennedys. <laughs> <laughs> so he bought the seat and like he would get in and then he would run again for his second term in the house in 1948 and that was actually that year in the fall he was officially diagnosed with his Addison's disease he was diagnosed in England and not in the United States so there would be like no history of it in the US and it said that Joe would hide medicine all around the country like every place that they went so like if they were in Massachusetts at a local bank that like a safety deposit box would have his medicine in it so that he would never have to like go and get it from like a doctor like i mean essentially he got it somewhere but like if they were in florida they're like palm beach house he was just stalked yeah yeah which is very smart yeah banks can't fucking look in that shit but can you imagine being like a bank worker and like having to close that account or that safety deposit box <laughs> and you're like there's fucking medicine <laughs> yeah. right 
Or if you were a thief mm-hmm. and you were like, the fuck? Okay. <laughs> Two years later, Jack would be elected to his third term to the House. And then in 1952, he would defeat Harry Lodge Jr. to win a Senate seat. And this is like a big deal. So Dwight D. Eisenhower is president and he had a running mate of Richard Nixon who's going to come into play in a little bit. And they defeated a guy by the name of Adlai Stevenson. So now that he's a senator and he's like one step closer in the Joe candy land of getting Jack to the White House, he goes, it's time for you to settle down and get married. Because you cannot be a president. I mean, we have had a president who wasn't married. But like in 1950s, 1960s, you have to be married. It was a marriage of political gain for Scherzies. Because like before, like when he was running for Senate, they thought it was cool that he was this like bachelor that dated around. And then they were like, if you go to the White House, they're not going to see it that way because they want you to be a family man. And you can't be like, I'm a family man because I hang out with my sister and my mom and sister. Because like when he was running for Senate, his mom and sisters were teas. In total, they had like 75,000 women that attended these teas. It was like crazy. Wow. Right? And everyone was like, oh, Jack Kennedy. Oh, God. <laughs> right? Um, so, Jack was like, he was definitely like a playboy, good time guy. And he was like, okay, I gotta find the right one. And he had met a woman by the name of Jacqueline Lee, or Jackie Bovier. And when he was a congressman, a man by the name of Charles L. Bartlett, a journalist, introduced the pair at a dinner party. And Charles said that Jack was very taken with her. And then he even walked her out to her car that night. Mm-hmm. So when Joe decided he had to get married, Jackie was at the top of the list. Jackie was born in 1929 in Southampton, New York to a Wall Street broker by the name of John Bovier III and his wife, Janet Lee Bovier. In 1951, she graduated the Bachelor of Arts in French Literature from George Washington University and worked for the Washington Times Herald. She was a photographer, which is how she knew Charles, which is how she ended up at the dinner party to me and Jack. Uh-huh. So when they they started dating and like they literally were like in magazines, it said like Kennedy going according. And it was like a picture of them like on a sailboat. And so it was very public. It was very like, this is Jackie. This is Jack. It was Jack and Jackie. Like it was very cutesy. But once Jack and Rose signed off on Jackie, the All-American wedding began and Joe picked everything. And I mean everything from the flowers to the guests because Jackie wanted like a small intimate gathering with like her family and friends. And when I say small intimate, I'm probably thinking like maybe 200 because this is like back then. No, no, no. They had over like a thousand guests. Most people that they didn't even know, but it was more about Joe realizing like everybody needed to fucking be there. And oh my God, Tara, he even picked what dress she wore. <gasps> no. She hated her dress. Oh. And she was very upset. Poor Jackie. And she was like, this is going to be happy. Everything's going to be good. But like Jack was like, I ain't going to fucking not be me. And he was still a good time guy <laughs> afterwards. But on September 12th, 1953, they get married. And then after the honeymoon phase, a very short honeymoon phase, because like they were literally in like, I don't remember where they went on their honeymoon, but they were like in someplace exotic. And he was like, you know what? Let's ditch this. Let's go visit my friends in California. And literally on film, he like hugs Jackie, like side hugs, like teenage boy hugs her and then kind of like moves away from her, runs over to his friend's wife, hugs her and then grabs her ass. 
And then Jackie, like playing along, like they're being playful, play like she's grabbing for her hair. But this is like, to me, the ultimate, like, this is what Jackie's life was going to be. And she just either had to deal with it or not. In fact, when she told Joe once that she wanted to get a divorce, he basically told Jack, like, you better get your shit together to make this work because that's not going to happen. Wow. Not surprised. Not surprised. No. Oof. But like I said, after their very short honeymoon phase of the relationship, Jack and Jackie set out to start a family. After suffering a miscarriage in 1955, they also had a stillbirth in 1956. They had a daughter by the name of Arbella. But the good news is in 1957, actually November 27th of 1957, Caroline Bovier Kennedy was born and she's the only surviving member of Jack's immediate family today. Wow. She's an American author, attorney, and was a diplomat who served as a United States ambassador to Japan from 2013 to 2017. So like her grandfather. In 1960, so to jump ahead, on November 25th of 1960, John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr., who was nicknamed by the media as John John, was born. Um, and this was 17 days after his father was elected president. If you don't know that he was elected president, what rock were you under? That's not a spoiler. If you are from another country, I apologize. <laughs> JFK Jr. was an American lawyer, journalist, and a magazine producer. From his childhood years in the White House, he was subject to media scrutiny. People were talking about the fact that he like saluted his father. I mean, people are just fucking rude because like he saluted him at the funeral and it's like, leave this little boy alone. He was trained as a lawyer and he worked in the New York's assistant district attorney for almost four years. In 1995, he launched George Magazine using his political and celebrity established to publicize it. He died in a plane crash in 1999 at the age of 38. Mm. Yeah, I remember that. Yes. He was on his way to like Martha's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. It was he and his wife and then his sister-in-law was also with him. Yeah. On August 7th, 1963, Patrick Bovier Kennedy was born five and a half weeks premature. However, he died two days later after birth complications. So that's his family. Just within their little family, it was very tragic. And then to be in the public eye, because she was she married a senator. Mm-hmm. This isn't like when Obama and Michelle had children, like they were still up and coming. They were very much like public in the eye the Kennedys were. So that's got to be so much harder. In the summer of 1956 at the Democratic National Convention, Senator Tennessee S. Sorry, his name is very hard to pronounce. Basically wants him to be the running mate of Stevenson, who I talked about earlier. And he almost was like secured the VP ship, but he had like the wherewithal to be like, no, thank you. Because like he wanted to be president. And, you know, we're talking like Eisenhower and Nixon. Like it didn't look like he was going to win. Two years later, in November, he would re-win or be re-elected to the Senate by a comfortable margin. Um, And during this time, he joined his younger brother, Bobby, who we talked about earlier, in fighting Teamsters through the Senate Select Improper Activities and Labor Rackets Committee under the chairman of John L. McLannan. It was very dramatic. And Bobby was like, he fucking squared off against mobsters. And I'll have them for part two, really, because they fall in line with my part two more. But just saying, like, I do have some stuff on there about Bobby squaring off. So if you want to read a lot more, 
There's some in the sources, but basically like he squared off against some big ass people who were not exactly happy with him. And then they turned around and asked them to help them with the election. So people were like, okay, maybe we can do this. But also Jack and Bobby were like trying to bring down organized crime to make a name for themselves. The problem is pre-mentioned Joe was possibly a rum runner and a mobster or mobster adjacent. So Jack decides to run for president on December 17th, 1959. A letter from Jack's staff would be sent and it would say that sent to active and influential Democrats leaking that he was going to officially announce his candidacy on January 2nd of 1960. Basically, like shit happened really quick back then. Today, like we knew about it in like 19. People were like, this was all happening. Famous people would lend a hand to back Kennedy, including one Frank Sinatra, who would write a jingle for him. Basically, he rewrote the song High Hopes, but they strategically played these during like the day. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But Bobby would come on board as head of Jack's campaign and he would make all the decisions in regards to what Jack's presence was out in the world. So in July of 1960, he wins the Democratic Convention, the nomination. It was hard because he was running against Lyndon B. Johnson and he was running a fucking dirty ass campaign. First of all, before that, during the primaries, because basically like Jack won the primaries against Humphrey, who was just like, uh, he's Catholic. And then Lyndon B. Johnson is like, he's Catholic. We can't elect a Catholic person. And when that didn't work, he went after his health. Basically, he hired a private investigator to like try down all of his medical records. He literally slipped yellow flyers of everything that was wrong with Jack under people's doors at the convention so that the world would know he had an article published. The fuck? (laughs) Right? Let's be honest. Like, that's what fucking people do. Like, yeah, yeah, that's true. Right? But this backfired because remember, Joe Sr. is very fucking rich and he just paid doctors off to lie. So Jack won, but he knew he couldn't win in the fall without Texas. And LBJ is from Texas. So he strategically picks him to be his running mate. So the two of them square off and now they're going to take on Nixon. Nixon is Richard Milhouse Nixon and he was born into a poor family in a small town in Southern California. He graduated from Duke University of Law in 1937 and returned to California to practice law. He and his wife Pat moved to Washington in 1942 to work for the federal government. He served active duty in the Navy Reserves during World War II. So basically we're talking like same, 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 same. And he was elected to the House of Representatives in 1946. Fucking same. Like as Jack, like same. Yeah, like mirror. (laughs) Yeah, right? And basically he came on board and he was leading like the anti-communist. That was what he was doing. He didn't spend as much time in the House. He went on to become a senator. And then in 1952, he became vice president under Eisenhower. So he like accelerated. And one of the big things that Nixon would always say is that like, I'm more seasoned than him. But like Jack was like, bitch, we the same branch packet. (laughs) Like we the same amount of seasoning. (laughs) We've served the same time. And to say that like he did serve in a higher office, but like it is what it is. Who cares? So Nixon would actually go after Jack being Catholic again and basically driving home to people that if Jack was elected, the country would be run on the Pope's decisions, which would not be good for America. So Jack replied by saying, on the contrary to common newspaper usage, I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president who happens to be Catholic. I do not speak for my church on public matters and the church does not speak for me. And then he strategically did something really great, which is that he met with Protestant leaders 
in the country when he said this. And they were like, oh, okay, so you're not what this asshole is saying over here. I just think Richard Nixon is an asshole for this. Because I'm like, don't pick on people for their religion. That's stupid. And so basically, it backfired on him. Also, another thing is Jack was very strategic and where he went to campaign. Richard Nixon thought, I have the greatest campaign promise. During my campaign, I'm going to visit all 50 states. So he went to Alaska. Wow. (laughs) Right? Geographically, all 50 states are very far apart. So he was basically running himself ragged. So though he was probably the healthier candidate physically, he ran himself to the point of exhaustion and looked it. And on their very first debate, Nixon didn't actually just like take it easy that day. He went out and was campaigning with like union leaders who were already pretty much promising to vote Democratic. So like a waste of his fucking time. And then when he got to the debate, he was very tired. And then they had this conversation. But mind you, Jack took a nap. He rested. He hung out by the pool. He got a little tan, you know, all that. And he knew it was going to be televised. And the one thing that he did is when they offered both of them for CBS to do their makeup... Jack was like, no, I don't need it. But secretly, he did his own makeup. Nixon was like, well, fuck, I... He had like a five o'clock shadow and he was very famous for it, but he was going on TV, so he couldn't have a five o'clock shadow. And he was sweaty. Like, I've linked the actual debate. You can watch the whole hour on there. But he asked for something called a shave stick, which is basically like, it's really gross looking. And basically the shave stick like you put on and it's just like heavy cake makeup that you put over your like stubble to make it look like it goes away. It was made by Max Factor and it was called like the lazy shave or the shave stick. So that's what he had put on there. And it was basically supposed to give men like seven extra hours. But like, dude, if you're like brushing up against a girl and you got like scratch face, like she gotta know that it's cake and scratch face. People who were listening on the radio thought Nixon killed it, were like, Nixon won this debate. People who watched it knew that Kennedy won. So one of the miscalculations of him. And right before I hand it over to Tara, I'm going to tell you what really solidified the election for Jack. And that was on October 19th, 1960, when Martin Luther King got arrested in Georgia because he was driving with an Alabama driver's license and he was sentenced to six months hard labor. They didn't expect him to like make it out alive because they thought, oh, this is perfect. He's in there. They're going to lynch him as soon as he gets, you know, to where he's going. So his father, Martin King Sr., or apparently affectionately known as Daddy King, reached out to Richard Nixon because he knew him. At the time, I know this sounds weird, is like Nixon was more popular with the Black voters because he was listening to what they were having to say. However, he didn't take his call and was just going to ignore it because it was going to cause a lot. Because at this point in time, a lot of African-American voters or Black voters were Republicans because it was the party of Lincoln, if that makes sense. But... Desperate, his wife, Martin Luther King Jr.'s wife, Corletta, basically called, didn't answer either. So she had no hope. So she called a friend of hers that was a Pacific advocate named Harris, who was actually friends with Bobby Kennedy. Now, apparently Bobby Kennedy, I've heard two different stories. One story is that they got a hold of this guy that knew the Kennedys and he snuck in and told Jack to his face, like, you need to call this woman, you need to help out. And then Jack did, but Bobby Kennedy was really upset. The other story is that this person called Bobby Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy was like, Jack, get on the fucking phone, call, make this happen. So basically what happened is that Jack called the governor of Georgia and was like, you need to let him go. I'm asking you to let him go because he was a Democratic governor. So it was a Democratic candidate to a Democratic governor. And basically he was let go. And this was the miracle. Like Jack Kennedy's saved Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King was like, I got his back, which flipped a whole lot of voters. 
So, with that, on November 8th, 1960, Jack defeats Nixon and becomes the President of the United States. I am now going to hand it over to Tara, who's going to tell you about what happens after he became president. Okay, so some fun facts to kick us off with. So JFK would be dubbed, I call him JFK during mine. I just couldn't do the Jack and Jackie thing. That's my brain. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> so JFK would be dubbed the first TV president and also would be the second youngest president since he was 43. And he was, of course, the first Catholic president and the first born in the 20th century. Wow. He got a lot of firsts under his belts. Right? I was like making my list and I'm like, God damn. <laughs> Just kept going. <laughs> His inauguration would be January 20th, 1961. Now, the inaugural ball, this was like a big fucking deal, right? So there was tons of celebrities. Literally was called the Sinatra inaugural ball because his friend Frank Sinatra, you know, you know. And <laughs> there was tons of people there, including Frederick March, Cindy Poitier, Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, Gene Kelly, Tom Curtis, Janet Lee, Bill Dana, Milton Berle, Jimmy Durant, or yeah, I think it's Durant, Harry Belafonte, and of course, Sinatra. So like, star-studded AF. And it really, you know, this doesn't tell you enough. In documentaries and stuff, they say, you know, the Kennedys were the first ones to really bring Hollywood to D.C., which is true. And Jackie herself was just like a first of her kind as far as first ladies goes, but we'll get into that in a minute. So, obviously, we're not a political podcast by any stretch of the imagination, and um, I'm very personally more of a, like, human rights type of person versus politics, so I'm just being real here with you guys, and just, like, very candid with you. Like, Jessica and I talked about this earlier. It just made me had feelings about covering this and talking about this, but basically she pointed out to me that, like, I can present this without bias and stuff, because as far as the politics and stuff goes, I don't really fucking care. Like, I care about the case. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. <laughs> yes. So basically, for the presidency, I am going to hit on some key points that I thought was interesting. If, of course, you would like the whole dissertation of Kennedy stuff, there's plenty of documentaries, podcasts, and all kinds of great stuff. And a bunch of those will be on the sources page for you. But I'm going to talk about some stuff and then get right into the assassination. So, like I said, with his inauguration, that was on January 20th, 1961, and he spoke his famous speech that included the quote, I think basically every American has heard somewhere at some point in their lives, the my fellow Americans ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I'm pretty sure it's even been on like fucking Family Guy, what have you. Now, this wouldn't be the only Kennedy up and running around the White House and whatnot. I, okay, <laughs> I heard it one time on one documentary and it stuck with me. Someone called Joe Papa Joe and that's what I put in my notes this whole time. <laughs> I love it. So it was said that uh, Papa Joe was calling the shots like Jessica talked about. And, uh, you know, that's really no secret at all, especially like nowadays with all the stuff out about the Kennedys. So JFK was able to pick his cabinet, but his dad insisted on making Bobby the attorney general, which we already know now. And what was interesting, it said that neither of them wanted that. They were both just like, whatever about it. Like, they're going to follow through with it because it's what Papa Joe says. Now, the explanation behind this was that Joe was insistent on it because he wanted JFK to have someone who would absolutely have his back and that he wasn't trusting of 
other individuals. We'll get into more in that in a minute. But I mean, I agree. I I, I agree that I can see that that definitely probably that was his point of view with things like he wanted as much control as possible. And he knew he could trust his son because his son was obedient. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's an understatement. The Kennedys are a very obedient group of individuals. Right. Like, you want to see the humanized version of Ride or Die? There you go. Seriously. Yes. So one of the big things that happens very early on in the presidency is the Bay of Pigs invasion. So this was launched by the CIA to try and take down Fidel Castro, basically. The plan was to have an invasion of Cuba with about 1,400 American-trained Cuban exiles. And this was supposed to be a, quote, quiet invasion. I'm like, how the fuck is an invasion going to be quiet? But okay. Okay, sure. And JFK was really hesitant about all this. He didn't want anyone to know the U.S. was really behind it. Like, he was said to be really iffy about it. And even when he gave the go-ahead, he was very hesitant about it. So what happened was on April 15th of 1961, they left Nicaragua in a squadron of American B-26 bombers. It was painted to look like stolen Cuban planes to conduct a strike on Cuban airfields because this is where this, you know, Castro and all that stuff was supposed to be, right? However, Castro knew about this, his team knew about it, and they moved all their shit prior so they didn't die. But then on April 17th, the Cuban exile brigade began their invasion at the Bay of Pigs, and it was a legit disaster, 100%. Apparently, the first thing was, they start off so great. There was coral reefs they had no clue about, and it started, like, causing ships to sink before they even fucking got there. So there's that. Oh, God. And backup paratroopers landed in the wrong place, and... Not long after that, Castro's troops had outnumbered and cornered, like, trapped all the invaders, basically. And they surrendered less than 24 hours later. 114 people were killed and over 1,100 were taken prisoner. I mean... Big, big fail. (laughs) It's not... It's like JFK. It's like his first day in office. And he's like, oh, shit. Look what the last administration left me. Jesus Christ, right? And the CIA wanted to keep it quiet because, you know, they fucked up royally. But there was a radio station that was just like, let me tell you all the tea. Listen to what's going on all in Cuba. And then so, you know, that's not fucking good. And then it spread all that shit. But I am going to kind of shift us over to a more positive note. That was like the very, very quick version. There's a documentary on JFK that I don't know where the fuck you're going to find it because I tried to find it on Amazon and I couldn't. But there is a documentary out there that goes through that invasion like very, very well. Just saying. But anyways, so more positive note, JFK was responsible for pushing the bill for the creation of the Peace Corps. And for maybe our non-U.S. listeners or whatnot, um, the Peace Corps is an independent agency and volunteer program ran by our government, providing international social and economical development assistance. And this was established by Executive Order 10924 in March of 1961 and then was authorized by Congress on September 22nd, 1961, and it passed with the Peace Corps Act. Volunteers are American citizens, sometimes have a degree, may not. They work abroad for two years after three months of training, and they work with governments, schools, nonprofits, 
all kinds of stuff as far as that goes. They do a lot of good. And after 24 months of service, they can request an extension if they prefer. But another huge, huge thing that was going on during this time period, and obviously, yes, still issues present today, and Jessica briefly mentioned, was the civil rights movement. Now, okay, minus getting him out of jail, At first, JFK, like, did not want to get involved, and that's Papa Joe's fault. One of the gentlemen from one of the docuseries that we both watched on Hulu, there was a man who talked about this, and he got the nail on the head. He said, you know, the Kennedys came from white, rich privilege, so they just did not understand what these activists were fighting for, what these people have went through. They just, you know, they just don't get it. And, you know, like, obviously, Jessica and I, we both have tons of privilege, but it's like completely agree. It's And it's not even like an excuse by any stretch of the imagination for the Kennedys. It's just the truth. It was their reality. I mean, they were rich kids. It was a very segregated culture. And so the people that they saw that were Black may have worked as staff or was like at a restaurant as a server. Like they, it wasn't like there was someone sitting there in their country club. Right. Exactly. And like all of these things in this umbrella, don't get it fucking twisted. It's not fucking political. It is just basic human rights. I'm sorry. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. You don't like that? Then this episode probably not for you. Bye. So here's the tea on what happened with all of this as far as JFK and Bobby were concerned. So they were more concerned. I I don't know why I'm laughing, but I am. They were more concerned with this whole rush to the moon, get humans on the moon thing because Russia was having all this progress with space stuff, which I'm not going to like, it's not me knocking them because like JFK did do stuff with that too, but I ain't going into that. It's well and good, but it's like at this time, you know, there was the Freedom Riders and they were the ones who like took the public buses integrated as a stand against all that bullshit with segregation and whatnot. And it was crazy because like JFK was actually trying to tell them to get off the bus because it was gonna fuck with his deal with the Southern Democrats who were called the Dixiecrats, uh, which is, (laughs) if you don't know, they were full of like white supremacy, racism, all the bad shit, all the bad shit. Mm, Totally. Yes, but he didn't want to rock the boat. He was a first-term president, and most first-term presidents don't rock the boat. They do some sort of, like, fluffy puff piece type something in their administration. I mean, I think now we expect more in a first term, but back then it was fluffy. Right, right, right. And obviously Papa Joe was like, don't get involved, stay the fuck out of it, blah, 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 you know, which is interesting because, like, they have all these communications with him, like, orchestrating shit, but, like, to the public, he didn't really go to the White House or public stuff. Like, he let JFK, like, do his thing, but he also said, like, it's also said that he, Papa Joe, said that, you know, he wanted him to still be his own man, basically, but I'm like, but how is he his own man when he's doing everything you're saying? Okay. That is so, like, Chris Jenner being like, no, they make all their own decisions. Like, everything happens on their, they they decide everything. And it's like, no, they don't. Literally, no. They literally say, like, he was calling Joe every fucking two seconds, basically. So on May 21st, 1961, Martin Luther King Jr. was at 
the First Baptist Church of Montgomery, and there was a bunch of white supremacists surrounding the church saying they were going to set it on fire and kill everybody in there. They did not give a fuck. And this really was a turning point because he called up Bobby and asked Bobby for help. And Bobby was like, yes, I got you. It's happening. Fucking happening. Obviously, this is also a turning point for JFK because in one of the things I was watching, they were like, they were co-presidents. Let's be real. (laughs) I was like, "Mm, yeah. (laughs) You have to look at it. Like, he's 44 years old in the presidency. He's young. Mm-hmm. And to have someone that that's so close to you is, like, the family, because his family was so close, that he could, like, be completely open and candid with and it wasn't going to backfire because really looking at the fact that like LBJ was his opponent prior. So he couldn't have that closeness with him because let's say that LBJ says, oh, in, you know, 1964, I'm going to fucking run for president. I can use all the shit against him. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm not like talking shit or anything. I just I thought it was kind of cute in a weird way. It's like, oh, look at the brothers. (laughs) The brothers Kennedy. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, like Bobby sent in reinforcements to help them. That was just a big fucking deal. And then also on this subject of civil rights, on September of 1962, JFK sent Bobby and also utilized the local National Guard in Michigan to escort and defend James Meredith, who was actually the first African-American student at the University of Michigan. And this happened on October 1st, 1962. So big, big deal. And also... This kind of jumps ahead a couple years, but it fits here in civil rights section of my notes. JFK would be responsible for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And if you don't know what this is, it outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, national origin, and later sexual orientation and gender identity. It prohibits unequal application of voter registration requirements, racial segregation in schools and public accommodations, and employment discrimination. And that's a big fucking deal. And that was actually one of his last acts as president before he passed. And of course, like we've kind of already touched on this along with this is the issue of the nuclear war because this was like, you know, Cold War, all of that shit going on. Scary, scary stuff. There was traveling done for that. I won't get too, too much into it, but obviously we have to talk about Paris. We have to talk about Paris because this was like the breakout moment for Jackie. Oh, yeah. She was set to become a star during all of this. Like the people fucking loved her, loved her instantly. I mean, she was a style icon. She was beautiful. She was young, cultured, you know, all of these great things. So, you know, people would say and like the media would say she was just the glamorous first lady. Her outfits are iconic. Even if you don't know much about this stuff, like you see one of her outfits, like the pink outfit, you're like, that's Jackie. You just know. And she was also very strategic with her outfits, too. So like, for instance, when she was in Paris, she wore like certain fashion and couture that was relevant to like French industry and stuff like that. She wore their designers. Exactly. She wore their designers. And then obviously when in the U.S., she wore like what was trendy here, things like that. And she knew how to speak French. So like, you know, she would talk to people. She was very charming. They just loved her. And she was also super young for her first wife. She was 31 at the time. So then they went to Vienna for a summit meeting with like the Soviets and stuff. And this did not go well at all. But JFK, you know, he admitted this when he got back. He was like, this was a fucking fail, basically. But what was interesting, the guy from Russia or whatever, he he loved Jackie. And he literally shook Jackie's hand before he went and shook Jackie. JFK's hand and sat by her at dinner and everything. 
<laughs> yes. Like, he was so excited that Jackie was there. And I mean, she was gorgeous in, like, everything. And, like, Tara said, her style was unlike any other president's wife. Like, typically, it was very, like, traditional dresses. And, like, when the inauguration. Oh, my God. It was beautiful. It was gorgeous. It was way more form-fitting than anyone else's. And it was just kind of, like, this moment where you were like, oh, you're here. You ain't playing. And to be like, I just had a baby. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Two and a half months, like less than two and a half months ago, I had a baby and I fit into this. There's a reason why people are like, I want to be Jackie O. Legit, 100%. And I mean, JFK like knew people loved her so fucking much. So he definitely played into that and played it up as we go along, which I mean, smart on his part, you know. So Jessica briefly mentioned, and I'm going to give you a quick rundown. It's not going to be too crazy, but I had to talk about this for a second, about this mafia stuff. I had to. I had to at least mention this. And y'all can pocket this for the next episode and do what you want with it. Okay. Obviously, it was noted that Bobby was obsessed with taking down mafia, and uh, that can turn sticky. So we already know the stuff about Papa Joe, right? So I won't rehash that. But <laughs> when Bobby came to him, he's obviously like, uh, fuck no, don't, no, no, no. Do not fuck with them. <laughs> Leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> and there was one particular mob boss named Sam Gokano. I That's wrong, but I can't fucking remember how to say the name now. It's like, guys, sorry. Anyway, Sam was a huge, like the most powerful mob boss of Chicago, like top tier. And he alluded that he had a deal with Papa Joe to help JFK get votes there. But they come to try to say that, no, JFK had the votes. We didn't need the help, blah, blah, blah. But you can do what you want with that. <laughs> Gonna play it here and walk away. <laughs> yes. But the point of that is, like, when Bobby came after him, Sam is like, what the actual fuck? Like, why are you double crossing me when I fucking helped you? Like, that kind of shit. So I just had to mention that. I just had to mention that. So anyways, so uh, speaking of Papa Joe, in December of 1961, he was at their vacation home in Palm Beach playing golf one day. And that was pretty normal for him. Like they all, everyone said like he loved fucking golf. And so he was at like hole eight and he said that he was feeling faint and he wanted to go home. And so they're all like, oh, okay. Cause that's not, he just doesn't up and quit. Like he'll do the whole fucking thing. Cause he loves it. You know, mm -hmm. people were kind of concerned and he's like, no, I just need to get some rest. Do not call the doctors you better fucking not because you know he's got to make everything look perfect <laughs> but after this he would actually have a major stroke like really scary one and obviously he was taken to the hospital jackie was actually there at the time but she had to call jfk and everybody else and be like uh your dad's in the hospital after having a stroke you need to come down here so everybody like they came they rushed right to the hospital where he was and stuff as expected and it was like really, really bad. He was on life support and everything. And they were like, dude, he's not going to fucking make it. He's going to die. Do you want to, you know, cut the life support or not? And Bobby is like, no, we are not doing that. We are not. He's going to make it. Blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, people think like, obviously, it has to do with like their religion and stuff was why Bobby didn't want to do it. But Joe would survive. Sadly, he would have a ton of issues after he had actually lost his ability of speech. Half of his body moved. Uh, I believe it was his left side. And then he also had like face disfigurement that was permanently there. Very, very sad. It's just life changing for him and not a good way at all. 
Now, I am going to bring up one more tragedy before we move on because it is relevant with the trip to Texas. Now, Jessica did mention the kids and everything. So I'm going to talk about the one who passed away after a couple days. So the Kennedys, their son was named Patrick. He was born on August 7th, 1963 by emergency C-section at 12.52 p.m. at Otis Air Force Base Hospital in Bourne, Massachusetts. And he was five and a half weeks early. The C-section was performed by essentially like I'm assuming her OB because it was his name was Dr. Walsh and that's who delivered John Jr. earlier in 1960. So Patrick's birth weight was four pounds, 10 and a half ounces, and he was actually the first baby to be born to a serving U.S. president and first lady since the 19th century. So that's a fun fact. But shortly after birth, he started having symptoms of H. MD, which is hyaline membrane disease. It's now referred to as infant respiratory distress syndrome. And so a pediatric specialist came down from Boston Children's Hospital. He was like, we need to transfer him up to this other hospital. So only five hours after being born, he was taken up there and it was 70 miles away and they got there in under an hour and a half. And Initially, like, because of course reports are going to come out and stuff because it's the president. They said this was like a precautionary thing, but obviously later it would come out like the stuff I told you guys earlier. And then at 4.04 a.m. on August 9th, he had passed away. It's just so tragic. And especially because she's lost other children as well. She fell into this like really deep depression, which is like completely understandable. Like, how could you not, you know? But the reason I bring this up is because we're going to scoot over to uh, the timeline now for the assassination. And she does go with him, as those familiar with this case know. And just I want to like point out here, they were talking about her, people that were there, because like the CNN docuseries that Jess told me about that we both watch. These are people that are actually involved in this that are interviewed and, you know, we're close to them and stuff. But like Jackie was just like very pleasant, very happy. It just showed her commitment to her husband and her family and everything else. So that's why I wanted to bring it up. A lot of people, it seems like, and I didn't really, I didn't know about this being this close to like when everything happened, you know, like so it just makes me want to hug her. I know she's not alive anymore, but still. So this trip to Texas, this was a tour because obviously we're getting close to time when like you got a campaign for re-election, all that stuff. And due to the Dixie Grats, shit was split due to all the other civil rights stuff that he had been doing and whatnot. So this was like an attempt to kind of like turn the opinions of the people, basically. You know, kind of like how I'm I'm assuming presidents still do. They go to states where they're not as popular, you know, try to schmooze and all that shit. Anyways, okay. So before he went, there was an actual like flyer thing that came out and it said wanted for treason and it had his picture on it and it was this whole fucking thing. When the whole thing came up about them going to Dallas, her friends were kind of freaked out and like, oh, maybe you shouldn't go. Like, we want you to be safe, blah, blah, blah. But she was like, no, I'm going to go, you know, all that. And they were just like on a high alert for this whole thing. But JFK was like, look, like, we have to show we're accessible for the people. Like, we have to. And everybody loved Jackie. So he's like, it's a win-win for that. So, you know. And she usually didn't go on trips like this. I believe they said this was was actually her 
first one after all of the baby and everything. Some said first one at all, but I don't know how true that is. I mean, she definitely traveled with him. Yeah, that's what I, that's like what I was thinking. But I think like maybe for this, they meant like the stateside stuff. Well, I think it was probably more of like, this is, this was different. Like he was going to make a big speech. This wasn't like a political function. Like there was a dinner, like a White House dinner or something like that. Right. This was like a tour. Yeah. He, he was doing something different. Mm-hmm. Now, I do have to preface something as we get into the assassination. So here in part one, I am going to focus on the timeline from the Kennedy side. Now, in part two, I'll get into Lee Harvey Oswald, like his side of the timeline, all of that. And then the aftermath, just FYI, in case you're like, where's this other shit at, Tara? Tell me, tell me, tell me. It's coming. It's coming. I just had to let y'all know. So on November 21st at 9.45 a.m., the Kennedys leave the White House and they get to Texas at 3.52 p.m. And there is a speaking engagement to the League of United Latin American Citizens, and they have a dinner at the Sam Houston Coliseum in honor of the U.S. Rep. Albert Thomas. And by 11.07 p.m., because they fucking jet set and fucking, they're moving this whole time, just saying, like, they bouncing around. I'm like, Jesus. By 11.07 p.m., they get to Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth, and they get to their hotel just before midnight at 11.50. Now, the next morning, the 22nd, JFK speaks again, and he actually greets the crowd, which is something like presidents didn't slash don't do. He was just like outside, and he was just like, I'm gonna go up to these people and shake their hands, and... I'll get into one of the um, Secret Service people later, but they were like, oh, fuck, what are you doing? What are you doing? But anyways, so, yeah, he he didn't give a fuck. He was just going to do He was going to do it because he wanted to be like, look, I'm a regular person kind of thing. But anyway, so by 9 a.m., he is at the Chamber of Commerce breakfast and Jackie gets there about 20 minutes later. Originally, it kind of sounded like she wasn't going to go, but he was like, no, I fucking need Jackie here. So he had his personal bodyguard call her bodyguard named Clint. And Clint's like, uh, Jackie, we got to go. And she's just like, do, 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 getting ready. She's like, whatever, we'll go in a little bit. But I'm like, yes, make those bitches wait. <laughs> I thought it was funny. I don't know. He's like, yeah, she just continued to get ready and whatever. And I just kept being like, oh, the president wants you there. Like, now. (laughs) It's like, oh, God. I mean, with everything Jackie put up with from him, like. Literally. That's why I think it's funny. (laughs) She's like, I'm going to take my time. You fucked Marilyn Monroe. You can calm your ass. Literally, literally, God. (laughs) And so, of course, like, when she's there and everything, like, he does a whole nother speech, and they give him a cowboy hat. I was like, that's very Texas. <laughs> he's like, I'll wear this when you come visit me in D.C. Yeah. They were like, put it on. And he's like, no, thank you. <laughs> he had like perfect hair. Yeah, I know. So after this, they would take a super short flight to arrive in Dallas by 11.38 a.m. It was like literally under a 20-minute flight. It was like a 13-minute flight or something crazy short. This had a crowd as well. And it was said that this was a very welcoming and supportive crowd. So, you know, it was like very positive and like good. So it was like, oh, okay, cool made them feel a little bit better about it. And there was this couple there and they would go to the motorcade later as well, the parade. And they both had taken the day off of work and had their two tiny children. Like literally one of them was a baby. And this couple's name was Bill and Gail Newman. Again, JFK greets the crowd and is like shaking hands and Jackie is too. And her bodyguard, Clint Hill, is like, oh my God, Jackie is like, because that's his job is to protect Jackie. He's like, oh God, like, 
<laughs> she's right up in this, you know? So he's like, I just kept very fucking close to her the whole time, obviously. And so after this, the motorcade begins. It was supposed to take the Kennedys and everyone that was traveling with them to the Dallas Trademark luncheon that they were attending that afternoon. So the limos had their tops off. This was an order by JFK. So no plexiglass, no tops, no nothing. He said that also he didn't want the Secret Service right up on his limo or walking by it because he said that, quote, I can't afford to have the people believe I'm not accessible. When the agents are up on the back of the car like that hovering, it appears that there's something between the people and myself and I can't afford that in this re-election year, end quote. And another thing to keep in mind, the crowds were like way bigger than they had thought they were going to be. And like they were not prepared for what they were about to come across. Literally 150,000 people total in this whole fucking lineup thing. There was so much of a crowd. They were like flowing into the street off the sidewalks and things like that. And all of the buildings surrounding them, not only were the people like down there outside, but there was like people in the buildings like hanging out their windows and watching. Like it's a big fucking deal. I get it. But I was just, I thought it was funny. I'm like, what do you mean you didn't expect? Like when they said that, we didn't expect a lot of people. I'm like, what the fuck do you mean? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, again, like he was just going to a fucking luncheon. Like this wasn't like an official parade or something. It was literally they were just driving semi-slowly through town so he could wave at people. Like, yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And it was so bad with like, like I said, the people like being in the road and stuff that the driver was trying to maneuver down the road so that like people weren't so, so close to JFK. But with him doing that, it put Jackie like right up in their faces kind of thing. And Clint was like, I'm not having this. So that's when he hopped off the limo behind them and hopped up on with Jackie. So he was like within arm's reach of her basically because he's like, look, again, my job is to protect her. Like, sorry, president. And he said that JFK just kind of like looked at him. He didn't say anything, but he just like looked at him like, the fuck you doing? And so he's like, I just stayed until the crowd kind of like thinned out and like it wasn't as many people, that kind of thing. He's like, then I hopped back off and went back to the other vehicle. And I do also want to know, I thought it was interesting that the local authorities were pretty proactive with him coming to town and everything because it was said that they actually went around and spoke to like local, quote, troublemakers. And they even went as far as like 80 to 100 miles away. So people in like nearby towns and talked to them and basically were like, you show your ass. You fucking do anything. We're not tolerating it. We're going to arrest you. Fucking bye. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the Newmans and then other people were also there. Y'all got it. If you all are interested in this, you definitely should watch. There's more episodes, but like on Hulu, there was only three. But definitely watch it. I liked it. So with all of these different people that were there, legit there that day and stuff, like we hear different points of view happens, which I think is just like really interesting interesting. So the motorcade started at 1221 p.m. And, you know, they're making their their way down. And there's this guy that's in this series that was like literally right fucking there. Like JFK was right in front of him when he got shot. And he was fucking six years old. Wow. I'm just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. His name is Jeff Frazen. So Jeff and even the Newmans, they were and pretty much everybody were like they heard this loud ass sound and they're like, it sounded like firecrackers. And this other guy named James Tog that will come up like more conspiracy stuffs was even like, what the fuck? Why was that? Why is somebody doing firecrackers right now? What the hell's wrong with you kind of thing? But it wasn't firecrackers. It was gunshots. So at 1230 p.m., JFK had been shot. The first shot missed him. The second hit his neck, upper back area, and then the third being the headshot. They were said to go off like bang, bang, a pause, and then bang. 
So can kind of be understandable like, oh, because firecrackers kind of stagger. That's what people say in this. So the first two, everybody sees JFK like... Some say he, like, puts his arms up and then others say, like, and then you can watch it. He, like, grabs, like, his neck or whatever. Like, you see him just kind of, like, hunch over. Like, oh, shit. And Jeff, the then six-year-old, says he was, oh, my gosh, makes me so sad. He was like, I was so confused because it looked like red confetti. But it wasn't. It was blood in his brain. But I didn't know that then. Oh, no. Right? I'm just like, I'm so mortified. Like, literally, in the part of the film where they show, like, he gets shot and then she goes to the uh, the top of the trunk or whatever, like, they go right past that. Like, him and his two parents. It's just, I'm like, oh, my God. That's crazy. Yeah. Jackie is such a baller because, like, that gun went off and she, like, was there, but then she acted faster than any sacred service person. Oh, yeah. She was, like, trying to pull the trunk top up. I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's a lever. (laughs) Yeah, because, like, Jackie, she goes to the trunk of the vehicle because, like, when he's shot, that's where stuff lands. And some people who really don't know, like, what was going on, they thought, like, oh, she's trying to get the attention or get to the Secret Service because at the same time, after the second shot, Clint's coming to the car. He doesn't make it in time before the third shot happens, but it's like they're both coming in two different directions, essentially. I cannot fucking imagine because, like, literally, she goes to grab his brains. Like, there's no delicate way to say that. That's literally what she fucking did. And Clint said that he heard Jackie say, quote, oh, Jack, Jack, what have they done? I'm holding your brain in my hand. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And I mean, we've talked about how shots to the head aren't fatal. But in this case, it is because they said multiple people said like they could see into the cranial cavity and like see where the brain was missing. Big holes. All bad. If he had lived, he would have been severely handicapped. Oh, yeah. So obviously, because the president has been shot, chaos is like breaking out. I do want to mention that there was the governor in the like front seat because Jackie and JFK were in the back. He actually gets shot in the chest. And like when they go to the hospital, there's like a nurse that was there that they interviewed too. And she's like, yeah, I was just like squirting out. And it was just like, oh, my God. I'm like, oh, poor girl, because she was like a young nurse back then. So like, I'm like, oh, my God. Day one. (laughs) Oh, fuck. like nope so the the limos they like gun it they're going like 80 and they get to parkland memorial hospital and they arrive there at 12 38 clint was saying like there was supposed to be somebody out there with like a gurney and stuff to like help get him in there faster but like no nobody was fucking there and that at this point my heart just breaks for jackie so much like she would not let go of him she was still like worried about his image and stuff too because she was like i don't want anybody to see him like this i'm trying to keep him covered in case there's like cameras or anything like that you know and so clint takes like his coat off and places it over the president and then once it was actually covering him that's the only time she would actually like get up so i'm just like oh so they get him in there and they take him over to trauma room one obviously this spreads immediately like reporters are like getting on the tv radio all that shit like it's just going every fucking way right now one of the doctors his name was robert mccleland he notes that the right cerebral hemisphere was blown out he had no pulse uh that nurse again i'm sorry i didn't write her name down but yeah no pulse no nothing and that if it was anybody else they would have just called it right then but jackie requested because of their catholic religion that they have a priest come Come in to do the final rites. So Father Hubert comes in and he does that. And then JFK would be pronounced dead at 1 p.m. 
and friends, that is where we're going to go ahead and leave you with a cliffhanger. Somebody kind of added us last time about doing cliffhangers, like in a jokey way, like you did a cliffhanger, but fine. I was like, sorry. (laughs) But friends, this is where we are going to end part one. In part two, we are going to dive into Harvey Lee Oswald's side of things, some of his background, the aftermath, and then the anxiously awaited conspiracy theories, because I know you guys are waiting for that. So that will be in part two. (laughs) Get excited for that. But for now, we will go ahead and sign off and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.